back when I talked to the writer Jen Silverman for the subtext. She shared a post-it note she kept at her desk. On the note she jotted something the author Rachel Pollack wrote about Idris Shaw, another writer. I'm now just realizing this is like a Russian nesting doll of writers referring to writers referring to writers. I, and I just saw the musical A Strange Loop, so I'm well aware of the mess I'm creating here. Anyway, the point is, this isn't a direct quote from Idris Shah, but a sort of encapsulation of a Sufi doctrine he writes about. Work cannot succeed if the person thinks only of the end result. That is really what I'm trying to get to. Work cannot succeed if the person thinks only of the end result. This has resonated with me ever since Jen shared it back in the spring of 2021. I wrote it on the whiteboard of my office. Work cannot succeed if the person thinks only of the end result. And here I am months later just realizing why this has stuck with me during a time period when I can't even remember what somebody said to me yesterday. Work cannot succeed if the person thinks only of the end result. This is central to what appeals to me as a playwright. I am in this game not for the ends, but for the means. I want the middle parts of the work. It's the middle that motivates me and feeds me. Those middle parts are where we meet our people, when we connect and collaborate. I talked months ago about how I realized what I loved about playing sports as a kid wasn't the chase for excellence, but for being part of the team. I thrive on the teamwork. Unfortunately, I fell into an art form that starts out as golf before becoming football. I'm out here hacking away at the golf ball solo, hoping to be... What the hell am I talking about? Okay, maybe it's like being the kicker on the football team, kicking and kicking, and hoping to be put in the game. That doesn't fit either. Good God, I'm, I'm completely drowning in sports metaphors here. Somebody please send help. All right. Forget the dumb sports comparisons, Brian. Work cannot succeed if the person thinks only of the end result. What's the end result for a playwright? Usually that's a production, maybe it's an award of some sort, but the focus for me is what comes before that. Finishing the play, finding the like-minded folks to work on it with me, talking about it, shaping it, changing it, making it the best version of itself it can be. Work cannot succeed if the person thinks only of the end result. Another way of looking at this is you might never get to an end result if that is all you focus on. I've written one play focused on the end result. The jumping off point was people will really want to produce this play. And you know what happened? Nothing. Because I couldn't even finish it. I may never finish it because my heart isn't in it. So yeah. Work cannot succeed if the person thinks only of the end result. Thank you, Jen Silverman and Rachel Pollack and Idris Shah.
is the Subtext Podcast, brought to you by America Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. My name is Brian James Polak. This month on the Subtext, I share a conversation with Gary Garrison, a playwright, teacher, administrator, and mentor to hundreds of playwrights all over the country. This was a bucket list chat for me because Gary was instrumental in my own emergence as a playwright several years ago. We talk about this a little bit. Before we get to that, I just want to check in with you. Are you the type of listener who follows along chronologically as each episode is released? Do you pick and choose episodes to listen to? Or are you listening for the first time? If you aren't the type to breathlessly await the release of every single episode, there are so many of them that you should check out. We started out 2022 with episodes featuring Daniel Alexander-Jones, Carrie Bentley Quinn, and Rajiv Joseph. In March, we also released a special episode focused on the impact the war in Ukraine is having on theater artists. And we released a special episode recorded live in front of an audience. This spring, we've released episodes with legends like Lynn Nottage and Tracy Letts, as well as the always excellent Jeremy Cohen, Heather Raffo, and my new best friend, Deepika Gua. Check them out if you haven't already. Also, rate and review the show and all that blah, 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 blah. All right, Gary Garrison is a playwright. He's the former executive director for Creative Affairs with the Dramatist Guild, a teacher, an administrator, a mentor, and an author. You name it, Gary has done it. This man has been an important voice in the American theater for decades, and he's been a teacher to many of your favorite playwrights working today. I was able to connect with Gary in Provincetown, Massachusetts in July of 2022. We sat outside a coffee shop in literally the busiest part of P-Town, Surrounded by bells, beeps, whistles, and birds. It was kind of wonderful, to be honest. Uh, just as a weekender, and then I had a home here with a former partner for almost 25 years. Yeah. And then I moved here, I bought a house here five years ago. Yeah. And moved here four years ago. Yeah. So, I'm a real Provincetown person. Yeah. And just in terms of, like, I like it here. I like what happens here. I'm a big supporter of what goes on here. Are you here throughout the year? Yeah. Like, winter? Yeah. So, I just figured, look, I was going to retire soon. And why not retire in a beautiful place like this? And and then, look, I just have to get to Boston to go anywhere, right? So Or or Hyannis or, you know, whatever it happens to be. So. Yeah, it was a, it's an easy life that way. We're a long ways from Texas, aren't we? <laughs> I was in Texas last week. Yes, we are. <laughs> we, we, are we are about just as far as you can get and still be in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. I'm good with that. I'm really good <laughs> with that. I, there are some sweet people that I love in Texas because, I mean, I grew up there, right? Right. So there are a lot of people that I love, love there. But, you know, that's where it stops. Right. Pretty much. Where in Texas? Southeast, right yeah. on the Texas-Louisiana state line and the Gulf Coast. So, so or, or as we like to call it, any place a hurricane is, <laughs> just you take a hundred... S- Right. I'll swath. I'm in there somewhere. It's a hurricane yeah. target. My home, my parents' home, my brother's home, my aunt and uncle's. You know, like they go across that area. Yeah. So, yeah. Did you get hit when you were growing up? Many times. Yeah. Yeah. 
and then and then you know as an adult uh, as an adult i really kind of dread is the wrong word i'm really anxious around hurricane season mm -hmm. particularly when my parents were alive because they form in the gulf coast as you know and then it's just it's a little insanity because you're just it's a numbers game is it going to hit this time oh it's going to hit to the left oh it's going to hit to the right oh no it's a direct hit mm -hmm. so they were you know they were hit two or three times pretty significantly so you see it coming you just brace for it you do the things right if you live in that area yeah. you just sort of have like an instinct of how to react when it's coming sadly they don't they do and they don't I mean sadly and understandably they're so war-torn by mm. it all they get numb to it and so they're like oh should we run should we not should we go should we not and you know that's of course how people get hurt because people don't exercise their best judgment in those times and they have a history of it and they you know they think they can outsmart it this time or outlet or it's not gonna hit whatever a hundred excuses and then Harvey came along for example mm-hmm and flooded every my in, anybody in my family their home was flooded some were destroyed some were knocked down some were infested with mold for a lot you know just mm -hmm. every variation mm -hmm. in between anyway so I worry for them yeah I do what was uh what was growing up like for you there? Uh, that's a really good question. Growing up was good. I was a different kind of boy growing up than what they have down there. Mm hmm So, um, and I had parents that allowed a certain flexibility and all that. Mm hmm uh, to a degree. And so, so I, so I was allowed to be, but that was just about it. I was allowed to be. Were you like, were you looking at yourself being like, I'm not like the oh, yeah. boys around here? Oh yeah. Early on. Yeah. 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 And there was no judgment about them. Mm -hmm. It's, I didn't fit in there. I felt like I was a Martian often in my family and in my community you know because I was so different mm -hmm. um, I, 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 I didn't I didn't run and hide it, it has nothing to do with my sexuality by the way at that uh, what I'm thinking about which mm -hmm. is in my early years like seven eight nine mm -hmm. ten I just knew I was different I, I looked at things differently I looked at the world differently I I studied you know I thought about things that I you know, at eight years old, you maybe shouldn't be thinking about. Mm -hmm. You know, I was sensitive to the world, or sensitive to people, or, or uh, emotional, or hyper. Or, you know, I was just crazy creative and all over the place, and you know, and you know, found theater pretty early in that part of my life and loved it. And so, and then of course, sexually, when when I came out, came out in high school. No, that was that was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that was a party. Yeah. Uh, uh, you said you found you found theater. Mm -hmm. How did that like were you performing? Were you like in school plays? Did you have a teacher? Yeah, in, in you know, in elementary school, 
I, I was a, I put on a dragon head and did a dance to, to something. I don't remember what, but it was in front of everybody. And, mm-hmm. uh, so I didn't see anybody. I just heard things. I heard people laugh. I heard people applaud. I heard people gasp. I heard people, cause it was this really cool dragon head. Yeah. I don't even know what I, I don't know why I was dancing. I don't even know where I got the balls to do it. <laughs> or who taught me the dragon dance? I don't know. Who gave I you a dragon head? I don't remember a dragon <laughs> dance, but clearly I was doing something. So anyway, I was hooked. I was like, damn. Okay, yeah. This feels like love. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a different kind of love than what you grow up with. Or maybe it's the same kind of love and you just don't know it yet. But anyway, it felt like love and I was I was in it. I was in it. I was all over it. And then I played an ostrich in a school. <laughs> <laughs> then I played an ostrich that was operated on. And uh, so I would lay my when I could lay when I got my carcass down, they would they would open up me they would open me up and I would squirt things out. <laughs> oh. Of the carcass. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> and I, so, you know, blood would squirt out and water would squirt out and right. l- l- mustard would squirt out. And, uh, you know, and I would throw some intestines out and throw some, you know, just <laughs> throw all kinds of shit out. And, right, right. And, oh, it got applause. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, again, I was like really taken. How do you go from the dragon dance, the ostrich yep. performance to writing Uh, (laughs) so I was going to be an actor and that's what I went to school to do I mean I was an actor in high school and then I went into I went did my undergraduate uh, in acting and then I you know I'm I have too much I'm a little manic about things so I thought okay well I did that okay that's done (laughs) <laughs> what, what what else do I want to do? Oh, I'll be a director. That's what I'll do. Mm-hmm. So I went to graduate school for directing. And then I was like, okay, I did that. Okay. what? Oh, I'll get a PhD. It's a little, I'm oversimplifying it. I was, but I went to the University of Michigan mm-hmm. to get a PhD in uh, direct, in performance theory. And, um, and I got hooked on play. I was the graduate assistant for the playwriting class. And, oh. and as we often do, I was, I was sitting there. I was like, I could do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. Right, I, I can write a better play. I mean, so arrogant, right? I can write a better play than that. That's just shit. What <laughs> the hell is that? And I was the assistant. I couldn't say anything. Right, So right. I was like, I could do And then I thought to myself, well, if you think you can, seriously, if you think you can do better, take the class. Mm-hmm. So I resigned from being his assistant after the second year. And then I took the class the third year and then I ended up teaching it the fourth year. <laughs> Cause I took to it really well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I took to it. Did you finish your PhD? I did, yeah. Yeah, I did in 19, uh, oh, well, I guess it doesn't matter much matter, but 1986, which was uh, crazy time because we're in the middle of the AIDS crisis, of course. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm moving to New York. In the middle of. In the yeah. smack dab. At the beginning, uh, a little bit in the middle, beginning middle, 
and uh, and I've got that old Southern Texas boy, you know, hi y'all, just you know, like I'm all friendly and I'm all up in everybody's grill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, like I have no business moving to New York. I'm way <laughs> too friendly for for, for Manhattan. <laughs> And then I got whatever Texas didn't give me, Michigan gave me. So I've just got like this, you know, I'm way too easy. Right. (laughs) Yeah. The the Southern sweetness, the Midwestern sweetness combined together. Yeah. You just had to look at me and I'd fall on the ground. And so, (laughs) so it's just a really interesting time to be there. I was very fortunate that I was hired in my final year at Michigan to start teaching and uh, administrating the playwriting program at NYU. Mm -hmm. It's, swear to hand to God, luck, big part of it, chance, timing, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I wasn't looking for a job, but you know, the chair of the program, this woman named Janet Nyper said uh, in her own inimitable way, Sweetheart, are you looking for a job? <laughs> I was like, I was like uh, yes, yes, I am. Just bullshitted. Yeah. Yeah, sure am. We need you. You come here. <laughs> so anyway, I, <laughs> anyway, I was very fortunate, and she hired me, and uh, she hired me in a short afternoon. When you so you're going to get a PhD in Michigan, yep. were you like? Uh, career in academia Mm -hmm. that was the plan yeah you know I don't know that I had a plan seriously I uh, I was an equity actor way back at that first undergraduate acting program that I told you about Mm -hmm. I was so every summer I would go and act somewhere Mm -hmm. uh, and go do summer stock and do my craft and then come back to school Mm -hmm. and there were two times that I was hired by schools that had professional training programs, and Michigan was the last one. Mm-hmm. So they hired me actually to come in as an actor, and they were like, um, "We have to put you in a degree granting program in order for you to be here." I'm like, "Okay, <laughs> <laughs> what? What? what pro- all right, yeah. what would you like?" Right. They're like, uh, "Will you have a master's degree?" So we're thinking a PhD. I said, "Fantastic." I don't even know what it was. And I don't mean to be flippant about it, but I really didn't know what it was. Yeah. I just knew, well, this is a condition for me being in school. Yeah. Because I'm the least scholarly-based person, and I believe University of Michigan would tell you that as well, <laughs> than anybody that came into the program. But, um, but I, you know, once I'm committed, I'm in it to win. So. Was part of it uh, to leave Texas? Did you want to get out of Texas? Quicker than you could possibly imagine. As quick as I could. Yeah. Yeah, look, you know, I, uh, without disparaging my home state, because they can do that really, they can do it for themselves so much yeah. better than yeah. I could. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I grew up in a, in a, an atmosphere, not my home, but in an atmosphere that was racist, bigoted, homophobic, misogynistic. You know, all those things. And I just knew I didn't belong. I couldn't li- thrive mm-hmm. in that environment. That was not who I was ever going to be. Uh, d- despite who I actually ended up being. But mm-hmm. I, that was never who I was going to be. So, and I just associated it too tightly with my home state. 
you know, with the male patriarchy and, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I just, no, that wasn't going to be me. So I had to get out. So when you got to New York, was it like, I've landed, I can start living my life now? Or did you feel like you were like, while you were going through like all these degrees in Michigan, your whatever, like, were you li- did you feel like you were living your life while you were going through all that? Sure. Or was it like, I'll start when I'm done with this education? No. I lived life full out. Day one, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. I don't. I mean, you'd have to check with my mom and my dad, but <laughs> I mean, I was, I yeah, full out, mm-hmm. full out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was a cheerleader in high school. I was the only male cheerleader at the time in the state of Texas. I don't know. I uh, somebody dared me. Mm-hmm. I tried out. You had to. You had to be elected cheerleader in my high school by the student body. Mm-hmm. So to try out in front of the entire student body every year. Um, yeah, and so I did. Somebody dared me. I did. I made it. I got elected, and then I got elected four more years. Was it a was it a, a form of performance to you? Was Are it like you kid? It was all perform. It was yeah. only performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was only performance, and so, and I was my ass was on the line every football game because it could have been shot. <laughs> I could have I was certainly heckled mm-hmm. I was I've been called every name in the book mm-hmm. it was all good um, uh, my point being that I lived my life out loud mm-hmm. like Emil and Zola says mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember a few years ago you said God. No, it was about it was about playwriting. You 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 were you basically were asking people to hold you accountable. This was maybe like within the past five to ten years. You sure. were like, ask me how my writing is going. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I so this is so I like many me and many of my friends and colleagues very much know you as uh, a teacher, as a mentor. As a, you've written books, you're you're a writer, and that's a lot of things to to be seen as mm. at the same time. And when you wrote that, like like, be sure to ask me how my writing is going. That really reminded me that there's an artist at the center mm. of all this. And I've wondered when you wrote that, I I wondered if you felt like that was uh, a part that was harder to hold on to because of the call of all of these other. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's bullshit of my own making, just so you know. So, yes, it's hard to teach and to write at the same time. You ask anybody who teaches writing, and they're going to tell you the same thing. You must know this. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just hard. Mm -hmm. If you're really committed to teaching, if you're really committed to to helping someone through their story, because you only got so many, much energy... And then at the end of the day, you run out of it. So I, I, you know, I taught at NYU for almost 25 years. So, so I wrote on spring break, Christmas break, summer break. Mm-hmm. That's when I would write. And not always, by the way, because I'd get to summer break and be like, I'm fucking exhausted. Who, I, who wants to fucking write? Yeah. 
Yeah. No, I want to. I actually just want to go lay on the beach and get skin cancer. Or <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of want to like be a, a shade of red that is not in nature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seriously, so I, you know, so I didn't, or I did, or I did, and I wrote ten minute plays because let's be frank, ten minute play is shorter, mm-hmm. not easier, it's shorter, and you can get several drafts in. Mm-hmm. So that's what I knew to do. That's how I started writing the whole, you know, ten minute play thing. <laughs> But you've written uh, like multiple books, right? Yeah, many, uh, several. Uh, uh, about so the 10-minute play. About the 10-minute play. Let's examine those titles because it's my favorite thing, okay? Okay, okay. I did not come out with these titles, just with, as a, a cl- disclaimer. But I, lo- I, I certainly took the ride. A perfect 10. <laughs> a perfect 10. Writing and producing the 10-minute play. Okay, so that's from the Demi Moore. I'm um, Demi Moore. That's from the A Perfect Ten movie. The per, uh, uh, right. Oh, Bo Derek? Yeah, Bo Derek. What right. did I come with? The yeah. Bo Derek. Okay, so A Perfect Ten, Writing and Producing. Then the second title was A More Perfect Ten. Because <laughs> we didn't get enough of A Perfect Ten. So we had to have a more. And I'm, I'm not making fun of my career. I'm just I'm laughing now when I look back on it. A More Perfect Ten. Then the third is... A younger perfect ten for high school people, which was fantastic because I had to go through the entire manuscript and take all the fucks out of it, (laughs) (laughs) and any reference to God, because apparently those two things cannot appear in high school print. Right, and and if anybody knows you, they know that you will not be able to uh, write a book about writing a play without dropping some f bombs in there. Yeah, well, I would think God. (laughs) So to answer your question, so I'm sorry, I kind of veered off, but just to say, it was it's been hard for me yeah. to to write, but I have done it, and I've written the things I'm most proud of are short plays because they were things that I could refine mm-hmm. in the time that I had in my life mm-hmm. to do. They also seem to be the things that were produced a lot. Yeah, I mean a lot. It's all. I found writing writing these short plays, when I started writing plays, I wasn't writing to get into school. I was writing to become a playwright, mm. and I was self-teaching, and it was reading, uh, I think, the first one, A Perfect Ten, and being like, this is a bite-sized piece. Like, I can't wrap my head around a full-length play mm. to start as I'm figuring out how to write a play, but I can write a, I can figure out sure. a scene. Yeah monologue and then start to put it together and like the fact that there was this sort of like I don't know so many opportunities across the country for those short plays that's right it was like such an amazing way to get started it is and you know it's so interesting we have a love-hate relationship with them right yeah because they do get us introductions into these festivals and theaters and we meet people that we would never meet before and and we're a little embarrassed that we wrote them all at the same time. Mm. Because for some reason, somebody has, not, not for some reason, I'll tell you the reason. A lot of people write really shitty 10-minute plays, really bad. Most mm. are bad. Mm. Seriously. 
80%. (laughs) Do I have to give a number? 85% (laughs) are probably not so great. Mm -hmm. They're okay. They're just not great. They're hard. They're hard to write to do well. They're hard to take somebody on a full experience, a full cathartic thing Mm -hmm. in 10 minutes. And you got to be really smart about it. And you have to understand structure and you have to understand character and you have to understand dramatic conflict and so yeah all those things have to happen in a very short amount of time Mm -hmm. and I think because festivals are full of um, (laughs) they agree with me (laughs) they hate not another 10 minute play (laughs) Um, because festivals are full of Look, uh, artistic director is trying to balance out things, I think. And so they, you know, they got two or three really okay 10 minute plays. Mm-hmm. They got a great 10 minute play. It's a little dark. It's about the Holocaust. Right. So now they're going to put a sketch next to it because, you know, can't have that. Right. Right. So we get a lot of sketch work in these festivals that are not 10 minute plays. They're sketches. And other people see it and go, oh, that, that, that. Is not a ten. You know what I mean? Like there's this very confused message going on mm-hmm. about what is a ten minute play, and they're not sketches, but we put them in festivals with ten minute plays. Yeah, I've seen it a million times. A million. Yeah, there, there's the the hook is a gimmick of That's some right. kind. It's That's not right. a it's not a journey. That's right. It's not an exploration of relationship or conflict. That's it's right. like a funny idea because they watch Saturday Night Live. That's right. Yeah. What if men got pregnant? Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. So, you know, the, the, and I often t- uh, teach this, which is, it's, it's a, you know, a sketch evolves on a central conceit. Mm-hmm. What if men got pregnant? Yeah. Doesn't matter who the men are. So it can be you, me, the president of the United States, or whatever. Doesn't, I'm not going to teach, but what I'm saying is, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, we've, we kind of sold out on it a little bit because yeah. we're afraid to be dramatic in a 10 minute play. Yeah. And, and uh, so my early 10-minute plays were not good, as you can imagine, and very much on some big, fun, maybe funny or clever mm-hmm. hook. And every once in a while, like, an opportunity comes around to write a 10-minute play mm-hmm. now, and I will always go to drama because I just know that when this thing is put with all the others that they're commissioning or we're mm-hmm. assembling... I know there's probably going to have one, maybe one other drama. Yeah. I thought I got very smart. <laughs> I don't know if I'm smart about this or not. If you look at all my, t- the, the plays that I've written, 10-minute mm-hmm. plays that I've written, they are all, they share a common style, which is the first, they're, they're stru- structurally sound, means they have a beginning, a middle, and an end, or a middle and an end. They're tight that way. But more importantly, they are comically dramatic. Mm-hmm. Starts off with some kind of weird comic thing going on. The f- characters are funny or quirky or whatever. And somewhere in there, I'm going to go, I'm going to turn that around and twist the knife a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then catch, you by, catch your breath. Yeah. And then push the knife in. That's what I seem to do. Because mm-hmm. I'm the same way. I think some people will... They have to have a comedy, so oh look, it's got thought behind it too. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. 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 So going back to to 
you getting to New York and getting that job at NYU, yep. did you feel like uh, I'm fully formed as a no. teacher now? No, not at all. No, I mean, they took a big chance on me. She, uh, Janet did. Yeah. A big chance. I was more administrator initially than I was a teacher because mm-hmm. I had been the assistant in those playwriting classes, mm-hmm. right? And I, you know, I am nothing if not organized. So, and my brain thinks like that. So I organized the program. That's what I was hired to do initially. Mm-hmm. And, and then Janet said to me one day, um, she asked me if I'd like to teach. And I was, uh, I was like, sure, yeah. I taught it. I taught it on graduate school. I had taught on the master's level and on the. But I was. I don't know that I had thought I was going to be a teacher. Hmm. And um, and so I began teaching, and I and I taught structure, which is something that had been pounded into my head at Michigan by my teacher. So I knew it well Mm -hmm. and I realized that most people don't know it well or or are resistant to it or hate it or uh, know it and forget it or I mean there's a thousand things that go on with it but um, yeah so I started I teach my first class was basic dramatic structure Mm -hmm. what did you start to uh, learn about yourself as a teacher like what like were you were you did you find yourself in the classroom being like discovering ways to be a better teacher like sure like did you have like major fuck-ups in the first few years working i still have fuck-ups not just and i've been teaching a million you know a hundred years now Mm. because i'm you know i'm I'm just shy of 97 so (laughs) you don't look a day over 90 (laughs) (laughs) i uh I had a really tough playwriting teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and you didn't quite know where you stood with him. And he was rough. He was smart. He knew what he was doing. He, he knew what he was doing. And he knew, knew it in other people's work. You could see it in other people's mm-hmm. work. Uh, so, so there was him and, and then along the way, over the years, way back in the acting school, all the way forward, you know, if I learned this, I don't want this to sound negative, but I learned what kind of teacher I didn't want to be. I had some good teachers and I had some really shitty teachers too. You know, I had a a balance of the both, but boy, those bad instructors made their mark on just as much as the good instructors Mm -hmm. did. Right. So I learned what I didn't want to be. I, I knew, I didn't know maybe what kind of teacher I was going to be. I knew what teacher I was not going to be. Mm-hmm. That I knew for sure. So I was going to own my shit. I was going to say on the first day of class or shortly thereafter, look, if I don't know something, I'm just going to say it. That I don't know it. And I'll go find out. I'll figure it out. I'll come back the next time I see you. Mm-hmm. I will have an answer to that question that you asked that I didn't know. But I'm not going to pretend that I know it when I don't because mm-hmm. I don't and I'm not gonna it's not gonna be any shame about it I'm just gonna go figure it out I'm gonna make that was number one number two is anything that you say in my class you should be as valuable as anything I say hmm. anything so I am an opinion in the room I'm not the opinion in the room 
Now, having said that, I say my opinion with conviction. <laughs> this is something I wanted to I wanted to ask you about because this is something I'm working on as a teacher. I don't have this naturally built into me. Uh, I want to capture and bottle your ability to be direct and say the hard truths without it feeling personal, cruel, you know, because it's so hard to talk about somebody's work when you're like you as the teacher are less like, oh boy, yeah, this one's rough. But you have this ability to like deliver that bad, that tough information without it being damaging. Mm. And when I get to that, I'm just like, oh shit, like how do I tell this person that this thing's kind of a disaster? Yeah. You know? Well, um, we've all been in a place where we've had to pick ourselves up off the floor, and it's not a great feeling. And it's public. More times than not, it's public, yeah. right? And I don't know. I don't know how one recover. Uh, I, I'm always fascinated that I can recover from it, or that you can recover from it. Yeah. But I certainly don't want to be the 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 perpetrator of it. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I mean, you have to kind of keep that in mind, right? You have to. You have to be loving mm-hmm. in your teaching when it comes to an art form. Uh. Without being also without being kind of namby pamby about it either, mm. which I understand is a you know, and it's a hard balance. My point being is that there is always one thing you can find in anybody's work that's good. Mm-hmm. Always, I have yet to find something that. I've yet to meet the person that I can't find something positive to talk about. Mm-hmm. And we got to start there. As simple-minded as it seems, you got to start there. Because our impulse as teachers, particularly as teachers of dramatic running, is to doctor, to fix, to suggest, to analyze, to, you know, is to go in on it. Mm-hmm. Here's what's quote-unquote wrong, or another, here's another way of thinking about, you know, like I hate that word wrong. But here's an here's what's not working. Here's what's not surfacing. Here's what's not floating. Whatever. We want to go in on it mm-hmm. as opposed to just taking a moment and going, "Wow, congratulations on constructing a character that is deeply fascinating." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's just start there and give everyone like let everybody take a breath and go, "Okay, I'm not going to be annihilated up here." Right, right. Let's just, let's relax, everybody. Number one, when you're in a public forum, when I'm in a public forum, it's, and I don't mean this in any arrogant way, daddy's going first. Like, (laughs) don't try to talk over me, Mm -hmm. because I'll beat you down. Right? (laughs) The reason being that I can't, I don't know what somebody's going to say. I want to get there first. Mm. Not to get my opinion out. I just want to get that person protected first Mm -hmm. before we open this up. Right. And people start jumping in on that shit. Yeah. Because you know how that can be. You've experienced it yourself. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So I think you have to be kind to, to begin with. And then always just remember as you're speaking that there's a tender soul there. No matter how many times they say, tear me apart. Tear it apart. Really? 
Um, I don't know about that. No, they really mean lift me up. Yeah, they <laughs> really do. Yeah. Who wants to be torn apart? Nobody. It's counterintuitive. I mean, yeah. I don't want to be torn apart. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think your, can I ask you yeah, a question? Yeah, 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 yeah. What do you think your greatest strength as a teacher is? Uh, empathy. Like, I feel like uh, I've had so many times when I haven't had my shit together. I've written something that maybe shouldn't have been written, shared something before it should have been shared, that kind of thing, and and realized it too late. Yeah. Um, I felt, I feel like I have felt all the feelings that my, my students are feeling. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability. I'm so close to that vulnerability mm-hmm. at all times, even as a teacher. So I think that's, that's uh, my greatest asset. It's not any intellectual ability. Oh my that's God. That's for sure. It's purely yeah, feelings. I, I'm dumb as a rock. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, I have no, I, ser- let's go back to that PhD. I have no real serious intellectual capabilities, but I am intuitive. Yeah. I'm an intuitive. <laughs> I'm an intuitive. So I, and I study people's behavior. So if I would come to the table with anything, it's that stuff, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Your empathy, that's great. That's a, that's a smart, smart thing. And I feel like I'm well, like that aspect of, of me makes me well equipped to work with brand new writers like the advanced level writers that's not like I'm not the person for them because I'm not like a text analysis I'm not going to read the glass menagerie with you and we're going to talk through like that's not where I think or feel sure Uh, and there are plenty of really talented and intelligent people that can teach that yeah I'm like ready to like like bring up the babies. That's fantastic. And then, and then set them on their journey. Yeah. Here's what's interesting about what you're saying, and here's also where I think some of this breaks down, Brian. When this is a very insistent. I know. Bird. F- I'm hoping that it, that the <laughs> microphone is picking up on it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and we oh, we we have. Oh, there it is. Okay. The, the trolley, the bird. We, I love it. We got it all going. Yeah. Okay, here we go. We, you and I both, and many, many people, have been in positions where we are in a public space, whether it's a classroom or a workshop or a reading or whatever, and that we're going to have to, we are being asked to discuss this thing we've seen mm-hmm. when it's over. And what doesn't happen is that, so I have my notes in front of me, and what doesn't happen is that I don't look, I don't, inc- I don't dissect you as quickly as I can, the writer, and figure out how you're gonna receive me, and how I need to change or rearrange myself to help you hear what I have to say. Mm-hmm. So often what happens is we just give our comments, and if they're heard, they're heard, and if they're not, they're not, no. You can't do that. You have, as the person who's responding, you have to quickly learn how this person operates that you're about to talk to. Mm -hmm. 
Are they open? Are they closed? Can they hear? Are they... For whatever... I, I'm not going to get into their psychology. I can't. But I can open my eyes and watch and look at them and go, oh, they're not listening. Oh, they can't listen. Oh, they're terrified. Oh, they're frightened. Mm -hmm. Oh, they hate me. Oh, they hate everybody. Oh, they're a malcontent. I mean, whatever it happens to be, like make some sort of sort of analysis and go, and then quickly in your head go, okay, how do I speak to a malcontent? Mm -hmm. How do I speak to somebody who's terrified? How do I get over that so they can hear something about their play? That's where I think it breaks down mm -hmm. because we don't want to take the time to do that or we're not smart enough to do or whatever. I don't know what it is, but I do know you have to do it. It's your, it's your compassion thing, mm -hmm. your empathy thing. Mm -hmm. It's you looking at them going, I see you. I understand you. I've been there. Mm -hmm. I understand it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like you ever got to a point where you were like, I've really got it together. I figured it out. No. I've, I've got my shit together. I know how to do this. Mm. Like your confidence in the room isn't a isn't a performance. It comes no. from a real no. a real thing. I, I joke a little too much about it because I'm a little I know what I'm doing. I know I know what I'm doing. I've been teaching it for a long while. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I've gotten a response back that, that tells me I must have some ability in, uh, in, in how a play works, in dissecting a play, in understanding the dramatic conflict, in understanding growth and character development, all those things. Like, I have that ability that can think very quickly and very concisely. And, uh, and yes, so I know that. I know that going in. I think I have rarely been in a, a room where I was like, oh my God, what the hell? <laughs> what am I going to say? Mm -hmm. Right? Because I either it went over my head or... But P.S., those moments do happen. They happen to everybody. And I, you know, one of my great, greatest fears is that I have inadvertently said something to somebody at some point in their growth as an artist that dented them. Mm. Wow. Because I would really hate that. And I'm sure I've done it. I, I mean, I, the thousands uh, of students you've had over the years. You know, who I'm knows? sure I have. Yeah. And I, so I would say to anybody, it was never, ever my intention. It was my awkwardness that got in the way. Mm. Or my inexperience. But never my intention. My intention was to help, not to hurt, ever. So, I met you first in 2007. You were running the Kennedy Center Playwright Intensive. Mm -hmm. I was a baby playwright. I had been writing for m maybe a year on my own. Like, w I was working those 10 minute plays uh, up to that point. And uh, the intensive had been going for a few years, I believe, at that, at that point. Uh, and I remember on the very first day, this was a seminal moment for me as a as a playwright. The very first day of the intensive, you had everybody in the room, and you said two things that I always remember. One, you are your writing age. 
I was one year old. I was a one year old. And you, you were like, you got to think yourself that way. Because I was in my 30s, but I was one. And I was just like, oh, I get that. And then you made everybody uh, say out loud, admit that they were a writer. Because that's not a thing I ever articulated yeah. before out loud. And after being forced to articulate it, I, that's how I have identified every single day in my life since then. And it actually was 15 years ago around now because it was July of 2007. So for 15 years straight, I am a writer. I am a playwright. Mm-hmm. And that was the first day I ever, I ever said it because it felt like I hadn't earned it yet. I was a one-year-old. Yeah. I hadn't earned it yet. And you, you were like, you need to self-identify. Yeah, I think of it, you know, first off, I'm really happy that that has been good for you. That was a struggle for me to say I'm a writer because, of course, when, when you're in a, at a dining table with a group of people that you know or don't know and somebody introduces you as a writer or you have to introduce yourself as a writer, mm-hmm. Brian, what do you do? I'm a playwright. I'm a writer. The first thing out of everyone's mouth is really what have you written? You know, I'm always taken back by that because you're because here's what happens. You're held to account for in that moment your success. Is there anything I would have heard? You know, that's mm-hmm. the extension of it. Would I know any of your work? Well, you know, when we're first, you know, when we're starting out, our work is being done in, you know, living rooms and small theaters and mom and pops and little Chicago th- what not, you know mm-hmm. there's no you don't know any of my fucking work what are you <laughs> <laughs> shut up I, and I don't know any of your work either shut the fuck up what do you you know so I feel like there's yeah. a part of me that really wants to go uh, wh- n- no you don't know my work but um, what we can't be in that moment is excited about who we are mm-hmm. So part of what you have to do, I think part of what you have to do is you, is to own it and say, no, you know what? You probably don't know anything I've written, but I'm working on this play right now that I'm really excited about, mm. which is about this young person, whatever, like to jump to like acknowledge it, slap it mm. away from you. No, you don't know anything I've written, but I'm writing this play that, and then your excitement becomes their excitement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, that's... <laughs> It's a very long way of saying I'm glad it's meant something to you because it's a really tough that's that's tough that age thing is spot-on though yeah every time I hope you use that as a teacher yourself because when you find out how old a writer is in his writing or her writing or their writing makes all the difference in the world on how you teach them and it makes all the difference in the world on how they should perceive themselves. Yes. I mean, that was that was huge. Yeah. Oh, I'm one. Yeah. Like, I don't need to create angels in America no. because I'm a one-year-old. I'm, I'm learning one-year-old. how to walk. Hello. Yeah. And look, there are brilliant two-year-olds. Not, sure. Not many. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, like... I wish more people would say, okay, I've been doing this for two years. Two, I've been writing for four years. I'm four years old. Because what they do is that they say, I've been writing for four years. Why hasn't anything happened? Well, you're just learning how to walk. Mm-hmm. At f- uh, walk and talk and feed yourself at four. 
metaphorically speaking. So, yeah, no, we just need to let that go. Mm -hmm. And look, you know, God love him. Michael R. Jackson can write his first musical. And, and <laughs> I mean, there's a two-year-old taking baby steps, right? God love. So that does happen. I just want to acknowledge that. For most of us, it doesn't. Yeah. The, yeah, the Michael R. Jackson story. Was he one of your students? He was, yeah. I know he's been working on, I don't know, I've never met him, but I know he's been working on A Strange Loop for like 20 yeah. years yeah. or something like that. And it's amazing. Yeah. And it's like, it's heartwarming to as a creative person who's, who f sometimes feels like you're banging your head against the wall and a thing like, this is my project I've been working on for years and years and years, and it hasn't gone anywhere. But then to see it manifest for oh him, and he seems like such a nice sweet person i'm seeing it uh next week oh good i can't wait good, good, good. Yeah. so what do you, i mean are you uh i'm just curious how how do you think the american theaters <laughs> how about a big question yeah let me give you the biggest question oh, the i can possibly think of but no seriously how do you think are we good yeah i i wish i wish the regions were more regional like, uh, I love, I love our, you know, our friends who uh, get their, like, the list of the most produced plays in America come out scrubbing out William Shakespeare every year. And I think that's wonderful because, for the most part, you're going to see names of amazing writers. Like, those names, they're wonderful people. They're amazing. I just wish that that wasn't a thing that happened because what it seems like the regionals are picking from each other or looking to New York and then uh, like five plays are spreading around the country. Mm -hmm. I wish like the Northwest region was working on Northwest stories about, you know, Northwest people yep. with Northwest writers. Yep. Uh, and then every region kind of focused in that way. So the list of uh, most produced plays in America would be 50 play, 50 plays rather than, you know, five or six or that's right. or whatever that's really that's really my that's the thing that i wish we could change in our system but like the nonprofits are still operating in a capitalistic sort of like mindset mm. uh and uh but the, what they are doing like we keep talking about how it's uh, it's a scarcity model but we're kind of creating the scarcity ourselves in a way yeah what about you what do you think Boy, I, I just think it's such an interesting time, right? It's coming out of the pandemic and then theater trying to, you know, theater trying to redefine itself and trying to be more inclusive and uh, trying to to be more transparent and yeah. more, you know, like there's a lot on the table. There's a lot on the table. Mm-hmm. And I'm not. I don't know who's going to deliver the post, uh, the uh, uh, report card. Mm -hmm. But I'll be curious to see how we did. The worst crime in the world is that we resort to pre-pandemic right systems. Right. And yeah. That would be the worst thing in the world. Yeah. And uh, you, you, the world can't change in a in a in a in a year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of good that's come out of, you know, post-pandemically. I think 
That said, and going back to what you said, uh, you, you, money has to be made. Mm -hmm. And money is going to change things. Or the lack of money. Mm -hmm. Because we don't have an, you know, we're not supported by our federal government and right and the like. So, and, sta and, and you know, often state governments. So, as long as that's got to be a principal concern, and I get it, it does, mm -hmm. for the most part, for commercial theaters, certainly, and a lot of regional theaters. Mm -hmm. Regional theaters look at Broadway and off-Broadway, uh, you know. That's just the nature of what it is. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the dramatist guild a little bit. Let's go. Because uh, just just selfishly for me, you started working, uh, I think, as the creative director. Was that your title? I was the executive director Ex of creative affairs. Right. Thank you. Uh, I think you started in that position roughly the time I met you. And because you were in that position, I this is why it's selfish. I was able to cross paths with you periodically over the years, which before social media, that only, it was like, that was the only way to keep in touch with somebody. And I felt like, um, I don't know, like, because you were, you were present at my birth, essentially, <laughs> right? You midwifed my, the beginning of my career as a playwright that I, was like thrilled i remember visiting you in your office on a trip to new york and then seeing you at a conference and then crossing paths at like some talk back and then and then um when i finished grad school in 2014 so you were like uh this one person that i like a touchstone in a way mm -hmm. that i kept crossing paths with and um i went from back into this is a long Maybe I'll cut this out, but who knows? Um, in 2007, one of the writing exercises you gave was write a monologue. Uh, there needs to be dramatic action. There needs to be a purpose why this person is talking. Yeah. And I could not figure that out for some reason. I was writing monologues that were just pe the, you know, the characters talking. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, you gave this to every, like There were like 20 or 20, 40 of us there or whatever. And one person nailed it. One person nailed it. Seems about and, right. And it wasn't me, that's for sure. <laughs> and I tried, like, I'm handing you, you're like, try again, try again, try yeah. again. And I just could I never cracked it yeah. that, in that whole two-week period. But this one person did, and you uh, had the, one of the, the, act, the resident actors perform that monologue, and I got it. I couldn't do it yet, but I got it. And I was just like, ah. And he was like a young kid. Like, I was like, wow, he just got it. It was a, a homeless man talking to a person at a bus stop on a bench. And that homeless man wanted something. And the other person wouldn't speak. And there was a dramatic reason why that person wouldn't be responding. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, shit, I get it. Seven years later, I'm coming out of grad school and I'm at the Kennedy Center College Theater Festival. And uh, I have this play that is a finalist for an award and it, it ended up winning. And they call my name out and I'm sitting in the back of the theater and I walk down and I'm like stunned that I won. I can't believe I won a thing. And they hand me my plaque and I'm about to like, I'm like dazed and watery eyed 
and I'm about to walk back up and you're sitting in the front row right on the aisle and I didn't even see you there and you grabbed my arm you pulled me in and you said that's a great fucking play and I it was that was like the greatest gift I had ever received up to that that, that was more important than that plaque which is wonderful but that was like that was the award and I wanted to say that on mic publicly to you because I think about that and I talk about that sometimes but more importantly what it has me thinking about as I am becoming more uh, experienced as a teacher but also just like as a theater maker and a person in our you know in our theater industry and I'm meeting more younger people as I'm getting older um, I realize that you've been teaching for so long uh, and not just like at NYU but all over the place like mm -hmm. running that Kennedy Center program and all the playwrights coming through that you've got like a thousand me's right in your but life but I don't grab hands very often but 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 there's one you right like I have one you and you've got a thousand me's and I'm as I'm as I'm uh, maturing I'm starting to see how that works yeah. and how you're able to navigate these relationships um and i'm just like thinking how thank i'm not even sure if there's a question here but i'm just thankful to have had this uh person you sitting right in front of me, i'm talking about you as if you're not here uh in my life periodically because the meaning like it, the meaning is so big for me sure right and it's different it's different for you you know yeah but you know the thing I think as a teacher you have to constantly fall back in love with the art and you do that per play to me mm -hmm. so like you read a good play and you're like oh my you know if there was ever a moment in my life it never happened but yeah but if ever there was a moment where I read a great play and I was like oh it's a great play <laughs> you know, I was like, fucking get out of here. Like, mm -hmm. I would be like, all right, it's time for you to go. Mm -hmm. Like, if you can't get excited and go, oh, my, wow. Wow, what that, mm -hmm. you know, something like that. Like, when, like, oh, I don't want to start calling out plays because I shouldn't because I'll forget something or somebody's name or something. But, like, when you really, a really great play, and you're like, that's why I teach this. Mm-hmm. Not that I helped write that. I didn't. I mean, they wrote it, right? But it's such a joy to see it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that in you, you shouldn't be teaching. Mm. You shouldn't be teaching if you can't find the joy in that moment of celebrating someone's artistry that is at the top of their form in that moment. Because you know what? Next week it may not be there. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it's also fleeting. Yeah. That's the truth. When when you started working for the Dramatist Guild, yep. did you feel like your proximity to creation changed? Like like working with people, like either writing yourself or working with students. Like, did you feel farther away from it, or like how did that I, change um, for you? Hmm. Well, you know, the, the Dramatist Guild, there are a lot of members of the Guild. 
And so when I started there, w one of the things that we tried to do was to go out and meet a lot of people and just say, hey, what's going on? And what's up? And how's writing? And how's life? And how's your writing life? And those things. And so, because uh, I don't think anybody had done that in, in a while, mm -hmm. or if ever. And we needed to kind of draw people back into the guild. And so, so I felt responsible. Uh, you know, this is my stuff, not anybody else's stuff. Yeah. I felt responsible for a lot of people. Mm. Uh, uh, and so what you, what you, so yeah, I did feel distant from my own art because I felt like I was juggling a lot to, to taking care of other people. Mm -hmm. And I don't regret it at all. And look, I created stuff during that time, so don't get me wrong. Um. But I had to, you know, when you're dealing with somebody who is 78 and living in Florida or 16 and living in Minnesota or uh, 40, divorced, at 40, widowed with five children living in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same way in teaching as I told you earlier. You can't throw that net wide. You got to look at the person and go, how do I talk to you mm -hmm. so that how can I be good to you? You have to look at the person and the circumstance to say uh, how I would teach somebody who is widowed with five children. I don't know is the same way as I would teach a 18 year old mm -hmm. in Minnesota. I just don't think that's true. I think you have to figure it out and, and hand tailor it. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, look, P, you know, writers, writers that I've met also just want to be heard. They just want a shoulder. They just want an ear. They just want, can we talk about how hard it is to write? Yeah. Fuck yeah. So you, you've spent so much time in your career giving as a teacher, you know, as the executive director for creative affairs at the dramatist guild do you feel like you've re like art as an artist yourself yeah been able to receive enough do you know what i'm saying receive enough like you're always giving yeah like are you receiving you receive uh uh you you receive back in very different ways. You don't receive back in the same way that you give. That's the first thing you have to acknowledge. It's not going to come back at you the same way. Look at what we're doing. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that Brian Polk was ever going to interview me for American Theater or podcast mm -hmm. ever. This is I get something back for you know. Mm -hmm. So this feels good. Or. Um, there's a playwright and a television writer by the name of Molly Smith Metzler. I don't know if you know Molly. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So I saw her recently. She's a student of mine, and I saw her recently. And she hugged me so tight and thanked me. And mm. so, like, when you get a moment, and that, she, uh, you know, we, it was probably, I don't know. I don't know what it was. 10 years ago? 15? 20? Probably 20. Because, <laughs> you know, as we know, I'm 100. Yeah. So, like, I don't know. But that her her hug said everything. She mm -hmm. didn't have to say a, a word, mm -hmm. right? 
and then she thanked me for our, you know, anyway, my point being is that like that, that makes you go, yeah, I'll do this for a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. Cause that's just sweet. It's just sweet and everything you need. Um, uh, you do get it back. You get it. You know, when somebody says to you, when somebody says to you, <laughs> when, you said, when you said, there are two things that you said, I kind of broke out in a sweat in the You're back. Like, I was which like, two things? oh my God, what the hell did I say? <laughs> right, right. And yeah. was it any, like, like you're just praying it was an okay thing that you said, because it could easily not be an okay thing. Mm. Right. I mean, a lot of my former, when I see my former students, they'll, sometimes they'll say, oh my God, I was so scared when I first, I'm just like, what? God, I must be a class A, I don't know. <laughs> mm. But a lot of people are scared of me. And I'm like, and I think in part because if I do anything, I'm not going to bullshit you, and I'm going to be honest with you. How that honesty and comes across is a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. But you know you're going to get a dose of the honesty from Yeah. Me. And I think uh, we aren't used to that. Yeah. And that's what is scary. Yeah. And we know we're about to be confronted by a person who's going to give us honesty. But like you said earlier, with love. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I get really disappointed. I'm like, you're being a lazy. You're so, why are you being lazy? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't, but I don't say that, but I really want to. Mm -hmm. Like, why are you being so fucking lazy? You're such a good writer. Mm -hmm. And then I look back at my own, and I'm like, because they're tired. Yeah. And they've had a, and it, it's been a bad year. And they're doing, the best they can do is this in mm -hmm. the moment. But they're not a lazy writer. Do you know what I mean? Like, so you're constantly in a state of checking in with yourself and kind of owning your shit before yeah. you give it to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Your stuff. Yeah. I, there's a, there's a, there aren't a lot of s the same questions that go through each one of these conversations that I record, but there is a, something I keep coming back to with everybody. Uh, and it's the idea of success, this fluid, amorphous concept. And I'm curious how you see success like what does success mean to you yeah you know I used to tell a story forgive me I used to tell a story about success and it still rings true which was when I went to New York I I went to Michigan at a time where there were a lot of talented people and I happen to be we all you know this when you're in a theater program or writing program you know you're best friends with everybody so I was friends with a lot of really talented people. And I got out of grad school, moved to New York, as, you, as we talked about. And they went on about to do what they were d doing. And then one day, uh, the first year, second year, I was in, I can't remember, NYU. I think this is true. I opened up the New York Times. And one of my very best buddies was in a full-page color ad announcing his arrival on Broadway. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> And then, as God is my witness, Do we steal that an, another of my friends. Sure. sure. That's okay. Sure. Yeah, take, take it. it. Take it. It's all good. 
and then another uh, friend of mine was in the back section of the arts section mm -hmm. on a half page spread kind of announcing his participation in a newly discovered O'Neill man <laughs> manuscript and he was going to be and he was also one of the founding not founding members he's also one of the original early members of Steppenwolf and I mean just like blah blah mm -hmm. and my roommate in college had a book in the book review <laughs> I'm like, I am, n and me, yeah. was nowhere in the New York Times that day. And I ate myself. I was not a good person. I, I was jealous, and I was all those things. And at the time, I was teaching at a university, big deal university. I had gotten a Ph.D., I had written a textbook. I had written a book. I'd had a lot of my plays produced, but for some reason that didn't feel successful to me. And and that made and looking back on it, it made me sad. Because mm. there was somebody looking up at me, going, "God, I wish I had written a book, or I wish I taught at NYU, or I wish I whatever." You know what I mean? And and so it taught me a really valuable lesson, which is, you know, we have to recalibrate our definition of success ever so often and just say, well, what is it, you know? Mm -hmm. Because what what is successful for you, you know, what's successful for you is, we often inf inflate that and it's not great. Mm -hmm. So do I feel successful? Is that your question? I um, don't know. I do know this. I do know that in order for you to succeed in your career, you have to redefine that notion of what is success. It can't, you can't be a baseline that you keep checking in with. That actually, it has to change. Look what just happened. We just came out of a pandemic. All our definitions of what is success should change. Because the theater is not the theater we left. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if your big thing is getting to Broadway, I got news for you. <laughs> might want to check in with that and go, okay, well, this might be a while, <laughs> you know, like 20 years. Or whatever you know what I'm saying it's like or anywhere else for that fact not just Broadway the world has changed and with it we have changed and with that our careers have changed and you better kind of take stock of it right and just say okay so for writers particularly if they were wise they would say finishing a draft of a play is a huge success mm -hmm. yeah and of course you want a production. Of course, who doesn't want a production? But you know what? Just getting there is success enough. Not success enough, is a success. Right. And then right. everything else is a little icing on the cake. And that's hard to hear mm -hmm. because we all want a production. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is most of us won't get one in the next year. Yeah. Right? So how do we sustain ourselves to the following year? Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't give up the idea of having a production. Let's just be smart about it. Mm -hmm. How do we sustain ourselves this year to get us to next year? And that's by deflating those bloated senses of what its success is. What's sustaining you at the moment? Um, several things. Uh, I have the most beautiful magnolia tree ever 
although it's it's struggling right now, but it's got two beautiful blooms on it. Mm. And the smell is exquisite. Like you just don't, it's exquisite. And, and, and I have found my love for gardening time and time again, but this morning I woke up and there are these two huge blooms on this tree, right? I garden a lot, but I didn't, when I went to bed last night, they weren't there. And then they're, mm. they're there. So that starts my day in a pretty great way. Gardening really is interesting because you see the beginning and middle and end of something mm. yearly. It's the cycle. It's the cycle of life. It's the cycle of playwriting. It's the it's you know it's the cycle. Mm -hmm. So there's that. I have great friends, really great friends, that are all talented and make me laugh. And so there's that. I have a great family. And. I think I, I am uh, I'm satisfied to know that I have I think I've helped some people along the way um, and that feels really good and I think I have more of that left in me mm -hmm. so while I don't have a job job I do have a heart that continues to beat in that direction that's what I'd say and a sequel to a perfect ten. <laughs> a more, more perfect ten. Uh, an even more perfect ten. Uh, a stupendously more perfect ten. Let's get it going. That was the great Gary Garrison. Thank you, Gary, for being available and willing to talk to me. The day I recorded this was just awesome. I spent the entire day taking the ferry to Provincetown, talking to Gary, then walking around this beautiful place before hopping the ferry back to Boston again. It was, it was just perfect. You can find all the 10-minute playbooks Gary has written, all of them a perfect 10. <laughs> you can find them wherever books are sold. And if you're a playwright, look into attending the Kennedy Center Summer Playwriting Intensive. It was a life-altering experience for me, and it might be for you, too. Thank you always to Rob at American Theatre Magazine. Thank you, associate producer KJ Jarbo, who, by the way, I finally met in person just a couple weeks ago. And it was awesome to eat and talk and walk around Park Slope, Brooklyn. Thanks, KJ. The music in this episode is by Quantum Jazz. The theme song for the subtext is High by International Pen Pal. And thank you all for listening. The play filling me up this month is I Get Restless by Caroline McGraw. It was a COVID casualty, and I hope it finds another production opportunity somewhere because it is simply a great play. Check it out if you can. 